Welcome to the Center for Investment Excellence, a production of J.P. Morgan Asset Management. The Center for Investment Excellence is an audio podcast that provides educational insights across asset classes and investment themes. Good morning, everyone. My name is Jeff Shields. I'm a client advisor on our North America institutional team and really excited this morning or this evening in Shanghai to have Eddie Wong, the CEO of China International Fund Management, join us. For those of you who are not familiar with CIFM, it's an asset management firm headquartered in Shanghai. It's a joint venture between JP Morgan and Shanghai International Trust. It currently has approximately $26 billion of AUM. JP Morgan announced its intention earlier this year to purchase Shanghai International Trust stake in the business. And Eddie and team are busy completing the deal, and we look forward to welcoming the CIFM team as a full part of J.P. Morgan Asset Management later this year, early next year. So first, thanks again, Eddie, for joining us. This is part of an ongoing series of calls that we've been doing. We've done a couple on the China growth opportunity. As you also know, a lot of our North American investors are at least considering new positions or adding to Chinese investment positions through both the private and public markets. And while we get a lot of opportunities to talk about the growth story in China, it's really rare that we get an opportunity to have someone like yourself from a Chinese domestic investment business talk to us about the market structure, investment trends, and who can provide our clients with kind of a framework with what's going on in China and how to best position their portfolios. So with that, maybe we should start off and just would you mind helping us, you know, tell us a little bit about CIFM and client base strategies, history? Would you start there? Sure. Thank you, Jeff. Good morning, everyone. My name's Eddie again. Today, calling from Shanghai, China. And maybe just a bit of my background. I actually came in from a JP Morgan background. So I joined JP Morgan in 2005, spent over 10 years in Hong Kong, managing the Hong Kong and the China retail business. Then I moved to Taiwan and became the chairman of JP Morgan Asset Management Taiwan for two years. And then I joined CIFM last year in June. So it was my 15 months here in CIFM. CIFM basically founded in 2004, so roughly 16 years. As Jeff mentioned, our headquarters is in Shanghai. In total, we have four branches with around 330 staffs. With our about 25, 26 billion of AUM, just to have a feeling about what sort of the assets we have for equity, that will be accounted for roughly 30% of our AUM. For fixed income, it will be about 15%. Almost half of our AUM would be accounted for money market fund, in which we are actually having the largest AAA rated money market fund here in China. And it has been a popular choice for a lot of the multinational corporations in terms of their cash management needs. We've just launched the MSCI China A ETF earlier this year in April. Maybe we could talk a little bit more later about the ETF business. So besides equity and fixed income, the more traditional asset classes, we also have fund of funds. We also have a bit of a retirement solutions. We have absolute return strategies. And over the last one, one and a half years, I think the CFM team has been doing a reasonable job in terms of having some decent, strong equity performance. There was one broker who ranked CIFM as number eight out of the 94 fund firms here in China in terms of the overall equity capability. We are also obviously being part of JP Morgan. We are one of the leaders in terms of doing the cross-border investment strategies. When we say cross-borders, it's 
allowing Chinese investors to maybe invest in Hong Kong, and on the flip side, allowing our Hong Kong investors to invest in China. So there are a couple of schemes that allow us to do that. So to open up, back to you, Jeff. Perfect. Thank you. It's a great setup because I think one of the questions we get from a lot of North American investors, Canada and the U.S., is about Chinese regulation, specifically financial services regulation. Help us understand, for those of us that sit here in North America and are used to a regulatory scheme and compliance scheme, what's the differences in China and how do you view its kind of evolution in the framework? Give us some background and some of your views, having come from J.P. Morgan and knowing a lot about our world. I'll give it a shot, so bear with me, because again, I've only been in China for 15 months, so I'm still learning, and I really get used to the regulatory environment outside China, so I could try my best to make a comparison here. All in all, I think the China public fund market here is still very young. I think the first public fund here in China launched in 1998, so it's still like a 22 years old market. And I feel like the regulation here Obviously, as Jeff mentioned, it's quite different than in U.S., given its emerging nature. My feeling is China's regulation normally starts at a more conservative basis and depends on the market situation. It will gradually open up. Also, when I try to compare the regulation between the two locations, I think the China regulations are a little bit writing in a more high level and generic. So there could be times in actual business practice where there are some financial players who will develop some strategies or solutions which are not forbidden by the regulators on paper, i.e. the gray areas, to sort of attract clients. So there were times where these so-called capital guaranteed products offered by banks or this sort of products that you know that these products are not for long term and could be a bit risky. And I think the regulator realized that. They are trying everything to sort of prevent these things from jeopardizing a healthy development and really want to try to create lower risk investment conditions. So I think starting in 2018, two years ago, the local regulator very clearly introduced different policies. And one of them is to sort of facing out this principle of profit guarantee products. These chunk of products account for a huge amount of the overall asset management here in China. So a lot of the firms would be sort of eyeing at what this, quote, capital guaranteed products money will go. So this could be one of the opportunities that the global firms and local firms would be eyeing at. Another sort of small observation would be a lot of the foreign investors will be looking at the whole pie and feel there are tremendous opportunities in China. I don't disagree to that. There are definitely a lot of opportunities in China. But I think from a Western perspective, not only the pie, but also maybe looking at the addressable pie. Addressable pie meaning like with the regulation, with the risk and control, with the governance, with the things that we have to take into consideration, then the pie will be a little bit smaller. And we know that the addressable pie should be the area that we should be focusing on. So as Jeff mentioned, the IFM obviously with a U.S. background has been a leading position in terms of compliance and control among all the local competitors. So I guess when it comes to investing in China, be careful, do a lot of homework, and try to choose the best partner you can set up from the crowd. Thanks, Eddie. Helpful, I think, for investors to hear that. You know, another thing that we get asked a lot by clients is most of them are seeking the Chinese growth story. And I think those attractive growth opportunities that you just mentioned in that addressable area. 
But one of the things that often comes up in these conversations is just really the public equity markets themselves and this idea about who they're investing with. Is it retail, institutional capital, and how is that evolving? So can you help us think through where is the capital coming from in the public equity markets and who are the dominant players? Is it retail, institutional? How do you think about it? Sure. So I think over the last 10, 15 years, we definitely see more and more institutional players coming into investing Asia. To put it in perspective, I think probably 10, 15 years ago, the retail investors probably accounted for 90% of the market. And then in about 2015, I think it was 80%. And then for most recent data, I think it's down to 70%. So In other words, I think institutional investors have been slowly increasing the percentage of the overall market share. And I think the influence level is also getting higher and higher. I also would emphasize one thing. is the high alpha that the market can potentially give to the investors here, given the fact that I still think the market is still quite inefficient. Just to, again, put some numbers into perspective. Over the last one year, when you look at the Shanghai Stock Exchange Asia Index, it generates roughly 14% return. If you look at the CSI 800, meaning adding the CSI 300 and the CSI 500, meaning the sort of the blue chip stocks and the medium to small cap stocks, that index CSI 800 index generate around 23% over a one year period. If you invest in MSCI China, it generates around 30%. But when you look at the overall market, almost half of the active equity public funds this year generate over 60% return. So as you can see, I've actually heard someone share a story with me. Uh, one of the local asset manager who actually went to US and claimed that they can beat CSI 300 by two or 3% a year. And maybe because of the nature, like the markets have very different natures. And as we all know, it's very hard sometimes to beat S&P these days. So that AM actually claimed that they can beat CSI by 3% amuse a lot of the U.S. investor. But in fact, when you are really doing the right active management, have the right research capability, etc., maybe in the next few years, you can still you know, beat CSI 300 by a larger amount, obviously with the right risk and control level. So for investors, no matter it's retail or institutional investors, I think the high alpha should be something the investors should be bearing in mind. But at the same time, I think it's still a very policy-driven market. So again, as an example, in November 2014, I think the government announced the Shanghai Hong Kong Stock Connect program and also the Chinese Central Bank announced a rate cut. And within that month, the market went up 30%. And then in 2016, there were some sort of new restriction on OTC financing and people were worrying about all those finance margin, et cetera, et cetera. In a three months time, the market declined 30 to 40%. So I will take this opportunity to say that there are a lot of alpha, but at the same time, it's still a policy-driven market. It's a central planned economy. There are times where you would get a big push from the top and almost like in a very short period of time, a short break. So we just have to prepare the fact that this is not like U.S. or other developed market where we will see some big volatility as it continues to grow. Interesting. So just for definition purposes, in China, institutional investment capital, who are those investors? I mean, I think you said insurance companies, banks to me, but is that the bulk of it? So from a CIFM perspective, yes, 
most of our institutional investors are coming from banks and coming from insurance companies. That almost accounted for at least 90% of our institutional investors book. Great, thanks. You know, the question I've long had and looking forward to hearing your answer is, we often look at China as a source of growth, but we sometimes don't ask colleagues like yourself, what are the Chinese investors doing from a portfolio construction perspective? And so I was really interested in trying to get a sense of in a typical CIFM portfolio, how much of it is China versus mainland versus China, Hong Kong versus allocations to global equities or other asset classes outside of China? I've done a bit of work there. So I think generally speaking, for an average China investors, 99% of the assets are still investing onshore, i.e. China. We sort of compare to U.S., I think right now U.S. investors is about one-third of the assets investing overseas. One of the major reasons for that is, first of all, there are very limited investment vehicles or choices that allow investors in China to invest offshore. More importantly, I think there are a lot of quota or restrictions refrain Chinese investors from investing outside. Just a bit of a background to it. In China, there are a couple of schemes that you could try to leverage in order to invest outside. You could use the QD scheme, so-called, which is Qualified Domestic Institutional Investor Scheme. You could leverage that scheme to invest outside of China. But again, it's a huge scarcity on this QD scheme. There aren't many asset managers that still have QD quota left. And at peak times, QD quota can worth 2 or 3% of money to get those quota. So this is a huge, huge scarcity quota for that. And for QD, this is more for the long-only funds that you could leverage on. But if you are thinking about some alternatives or some more sophisticated products, you need to leverage another scheme, which is called QDLP. So it was earlier this year that, for example, CIFM had some QDLP quota, and we partnered up with JP Morgan, and we were able to offer a distressed bond fund for some of the private bank clients here in China. So this is very new to them, but they are very excited to see that there are some really interesting JP Morgan managed alternative products that could offer here in China. The QD was launched in 2006. The QDLP was launched in 2012. And then 2016, there's a Hong Kong Stop and Connect, which is, again, the quota is much bigger. And then investors are now more easy to invest between Hong Kong and China. But when it comes to investing in US, when it comes to investing in Europe, it's a lot harder. And to be honest, after 15 months here on the ground, I just do not feel like there's a huge demand for onshore investors, so much as retail industry to invest offshore. Maybe one of the reasons because the China Asia has been doing reasonably well. Thanks. Appreciate that. Maybe the next question that would be helpful is trying to understand a little bit more about the public equity markets and kind of the structure from the exchanges. And, you know, we read about like Hong Kong exchange, Shanghai exchange. Now we read about the star and the shine next. And so, it's confusing for, or maybe it's just confusing for me, but maybe for other investors as well. How is the development from a policy perspective and a growth perspective, how are all these things connected? And maybe you could just provide us some insight into how the exchanges are growing with the markets. No problem. So as a 
local grown Hong Kong person. I know a little bit better about Hong Kong stock market. Obviously, among all the exchange Jeff you have just mentioned, Hong Kong definitely is the most international exchange you could go for. And the most important bit, obviously, our audience would probably aware of is there isn't any exchange control. It's much easier for investors to get in and out within the Hong Kong exchange or the Hong Kong stock market. Right now, I think there are about 2,500 companies listed in Hong Kong. And I think right now, Hong Kong should be the cheapest, not one of the cheapest market you could find among the developed market space. So we do see a lot of money actually chasing some of the Hong Kong stocks. And there were very robust IPO going on in the Hong Kong exchange. And as you know, there are quite a number of Chinese firms that are already listed in U.S. that are thinking about returning to China or Hong Kong. And I think at least over the last six to nine months, there were like five to eight blockbuster IPOs happened in Hong Kong that used to be in the U.S. And the listing requirement between Hong Kong and Shanghai is a little bit different. I think Hong Kong can accept they have a slightly lower threshold in terms of the finance performance, especially the profitability bit. So a lot of the Chinese companies, U.S. companies will be choosing Hong Kong as their first stop among Asia. For Shanghai and Shenzhen, obviously, younger exchanges, basically, it represents, they are the major boards, and we just treat it as the China economy barometers. Companies like ICBC, China Merchant Bank, PetroChina, you know, the giants that are listed in these markets, there are about 2,000 firms that are listed on these two major boards. And when it comes to P-E ratio, Hong Kong right now roughly is around 15 times. Asia is around 27 times. So it feels like the P-E is a little bit higher, but when it was at peak, the P-E for Asia is about 70 times. So it has already gone a lot lower than it used to be. So that's the Shanghai Shenzhen Stock Exchange. And investors should also pay a little bit more attention to the star market, as Jeff has mentioned. The longer way of saying it is Science Technology Innovation Board, or aka Star Market. It was a board that was encouraged and sort of created by Chairman C. The board is basically specialized in high-tech and national strategic-oriented companies. And a lot of the people believe that this board or the companies listed over there represent the innovation direction and the future for China. And you could imagine that it could be, you know, the China version of NASDAQ. There are about 180 firms that are currently listed at the starboard. The market cap is still tiny, probably like one-tenth or even one-fifteenth of the major board. But because of its popularity, I think there are still like 250 firms that are waiting to be listed on the starboard. So these are the three major exchanges that I could introduce today, but obviously there are some smaller ones, i.e. the SME board, the Chinex, which maybe in the future, if we have time, we could introduce that later. Great. You know, another question going back to CIFM and its work with investors is here in North America, we're having a lot of conversations around the 60-40 portfolio. And you've talked a little bit about it, I think, in your business mix at CIFM. But what is the standard yeah, is there a 60-40 portfolio in China? What does a portfolio look like? From my observation, I think in China, the 60-40 as a standard benchmark is definitely not widely used or not really applicable for the portfolio management here. So just to sort of having some numbers to back it up, by June this year, 
over 70% of the public equity funds are invested by retail investors. And on the flip side, for all the bond funds, 85% of them are institutional investors. So there could be a behavior where all the institutional investors are very keen to be very safe and stable and go for the bond market. And the retail investors are much more sort of able to take risks that they believe they can and willing to put more money into their equity portfolios. Having said that, I think if I have to name one trend that I strongly believe that it will happen in the China fund market, it will be asset allocation. Or it will be eventually, not necessarily 60-40, but it will be maybe starting from 10-90, 10 equity, 90 bond, and then 20-80, and then 30-70, and so on and so forth. So I think the idea is coming. But again, comparing to U.S. investors or Hong Kong investors, where, for example, if they invest in J.P. Morgan Global Income or Multi-Income Fund, it's a portfolio that could really be diversified, globally allocated with different asset classes. But again, when you think about China, it's very hard to have enough asset class or vehicles to have the portfolio to be diversified enough. So when the concept is here, I think at the end of the day, we probably need a little bit more relaxation, maybe on the regulation, maybe to create some new asset classes or allow different asset classes to have better liquidity so to sort of arrive to maybe today's U.S., where it's a lot common to see uh, 60-40 or 70-30 kind of portfolio that you guys have been enjoying. Interesting. So let's pick up on what you said about the fixed income market. And I saw this morning there was actually kind of a Chinese fixed income deal in U.S. dollars actually done. So it's kind of timely. The Chinese domestic debt market, in an extremely low global rate environment, continues to offer attractive yields. But it seems a bit more complicated than that. And so maybe you can just shed some light for investors on the differences in the fixed income and credit markets in China and just help us at least get us started on an understanding of what some of those differences are. Sure. So maybe I'll just start off by saying that unlike the well, equity market, obviously you also need a great partner to help you to, to invest this. I think for the bond market, more even so. So I think it's essential to invest the bond market via a reputable solution provider with the right research capability on the ground, having the knowledge, having the insight, knowing what can be done, what cannot be done, knowing all those policies and the risk and control and governance for the fixed income market. My feeling is equity could be a little bit advanced compared to the fixed income market. And there are a lot of things that are still being developed. But nonetheless, I think the local regulators are having all these sort of enhanced governance on, for example, the credit bond rating, which was a bit of an issue over the last couple of years. So my understanding is, for example, S&P Global is now authorized to do bond ratings in China. So it definitely helped to increase the international capability in terms of allowing these global rating agencies to come to China and do the proper rating for different companies. There has been issues like, you know, unexpected payment delay or sort of the corporates just went down without any sort of signal. So these are the things that I think we have to be aware about. But the bond market here is, I think by June this year, it was about 14 trillion US dollar. And the offshore capital investment portion is only about two to 3%. So there are tremendous potential for in the next couple of years to have the bond market to continue to grow. And I do see a lot of institutional investors here 
they always have a very strong demand on investing bond-related type of products. Again, we do not have that many type of products. So fixed income is the bread and butter for the local institution. I also see there was a draft released from the government seeking for public comments, I think a month ago, looking sort of to relax a bit of a offshore capital investment management on the China bond market. So I haven't got the details, but I feel like there should be good news for investors to consider investing in China bond or the China ETFs. So in short, I think the bond markets continue to grow. A lot of opportunities. Overall government is definitely going up. Still a small bond market size, although obviously second in the world, but there are still a lot to be done. But we have to be aware of the potential risk for this market. Eddie, thanks so much. We really appreciate your time. And we hope everyone enjoyed today's call. Thank you for your ongoing partnership. If you need any additional information on anything that we've discussed, please reach out to your J.P. Morgan client advisor. For institutional wholesale professional clients and qualified investors only, not for retail use or distribution, not for retail distribution, this communication has been prepared exclusively for institutional wholesale professional clients and qualified investors only, as defined by local laws and regulations. The views contained herein are not to be taken as advice or a recommendation to buy or sell any investment in any jurisdiction, nor is it a commitment from J.P. Morgan Asset Management or any of its subsidiaries to participate in any of the transactions mentioned herein. Any forecasts, figures, opinions or investment techniques and strategies set out are for information purposes only, based on certain assumptions and current market conditions and are subject to change without prior notice. All information presented herein is considered to be accurate at the time of production. This material does not contain sufficient information to support an investment decision and it should not be relied upon by you in evaluating the merits of investing in any securities or products. In addition, users should make an independent assessment of the legal, regulatory, tax, credit and accounting implications and determine, together with their own professional advisors, if any investment mentioned herein is believed to be suitable to their personal goals. Investors should ensure that they obtain all available relevant information before making any investment. It should be noted that investment involves risks. The value of investments and the income from them may fluctuate in accordance with market conditions and taxation agreements and investors may not get back the full amount invested. Both past performance and yields are not reliable indicators of current and future results. J.P. Morgan Asset Management is the brand for the asset management business of J.P. Morgan Chase & Company and its affiliates worldwide. To the extent permitted by applicable law, we may record telephone calls and monitor electronic communications to comply with our legal and regulatory obligations and internal policies. Personal data will be collected, stored and processed by J.P. Morgan Asset Management in accordance with our privacy policies at https colon slash slash am dot jpmorgan.com slash global slash privacy. This communication is issued by the following entities in the United States by J.P. Morgan Investment Management Inc. or J.P. Morgan Alternative Asset Management Inc., both regulated by the Securities and Exchange Commission in Latin America for intended recipients use only by local J.P. Morgan entities, as the case may be, in Canada, for institutional clients use only by J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Canada Inc., which is a registered portfolio manager and exempt market dealer in all Canadian provinces and territories except the Yukon and is also registered as an investment fund manager in British Columbia, Ontario, Quebec and Newfoundland and Labrador, in the United Kingdom, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management, UK, Limited, 
which is authorized and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority, in other European jurisdictions, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Europe S. A. Grave R.L., in Asia-Pacific, APAC, by the following issuing entities and in the respective jurisdictions in which they are primarily regulated, J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Asia-Pacific, Limited, or J.P. Morgan Funds, Asia, Limited, or J.P. Morgan Asset Management Real Assets, Asia, Limited, each of which is regulated by the Securities and Futures Commission of Hong Kong, J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Singapore, Limited, Company, Reg, No. 197,601,586K, which this advertisement or publication has not been reviewed by the Monetary Authority of Singapore, J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Taiwan, Limited, J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Japan, Limited which is a member of the Investment Trusts Association, Japan, the Japan Investment Advisors Association, Type 2 Financial Instruments Firms Association and the Japan Securities Dealers Association and is regulated by the Financial Services Agency, Registration Number Kanto Local Finance Bureau, Financial Instruments Firm, Number 330, in Australia, to wholesale clients only as defined in Section 761A and 761G of the Corporations Act 2001, Commonwealth by J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Australia, Limited, ABN 55143832080, AFSL 376919, Copyright 2020 J.P. Morgan Chase & Company All Rights Reserved.